Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 6, and we'll be reading from verse 6 through 14 at this time. And the title of today's sermon is called The New Life. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 through 14. Hear now God's word. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, Romans chapter 6 is a powerful chapter in one of the most foundational books in the entire Bible. And our main passage, like I just read, is from verse 6 through 14. But allow me, for the sake of context and background, uh, get, summarize and then read verse 1 through 5 as you have your whole Bibles open to Romans 6. Uh, Romans 6, 1 through 5 was this proclamation that we shouldn't strive any longer to live in sin, but to strive to live in Christ's righteousness because actually we have been baptized spiritually into the work of Jesus Christ. We say this often, his perfect life, his perfect death, and his glorious resurrection. Let me just read verse 1 through 5, what Paul says to build up this argument. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And to, to summarize this, Number one, we are now dead to the dominion of sin because of Jesus Christ, his perfect work. Number two, we are baptized into Christ's death and resurrection so that what? We can have new life. And then finally, if we have faith in Christ, then actually we are forever. This is the promise, forever united to him. Those were the fundamental, foundational statements of Paul's argument that we can now live as new creations. Essentially, and we've heard this a lot over the years, before you can go and do, and a lot of you might practically wonder, what am I supposed to do as a Christian? And you search the scriptures and you try to obey and you seek to obey what God has commanded. Before you can go and do, you must believe and accept the already done. Before you can go and do, you must believe and accept the already done. And the already done portion was, is exactly what the gospel is. What God has done for us by sending his son to die for our sins and grant us new life as we believe only in him for salvation. And if you're new here, this is what we believe, that we, salvation comes through faith alone. 
by grace alone, and of course, in Christ alone. So what Paul is saying is, we're now united with him, baptized in him, dead to sin, raised in Christ, and we are now to live out and discover how to live in this new life. But there's a tension here, of course. Even Paul understood this. You just read the next chapter. There's a tension. It's not easy. It's not an easy path. And if you're a Christian here, you realize that sin still hangs around. This is wonderful what you just said, Robin. But really, like, uh, it, it is so difficult. Sin still always hangs around. Old habits, sinful thoughts, and actions still linger. So what gives? You just read this beautiful promise, but when I'm matching it to my life, what gives? How can I seek out holiness when I'm still struggling with sin, you might say? Why is living in the new life so hard and at times so very discouraging? Well, we're definitely not alone in feeling that way. Brian Chapel, a former president of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis and is now our current stated clerk of our denomination, he shared in his uh, book uh, a story of a pastor's uh, deep concern for his congregants in his book, uh, Holiness by Grace. And listen to uh, Chapel, who says of this pastor about these battles. Chapel is quoting this pastor, an ordinary local church pastor, who said, people in his church were despairing that they would ever obtain the spiritual maturity and victory for which they longed. Does that apply to you? Let me just stop right there. Have you ever said, why am I not more mature by this point in my life? Why am I not seeing utter victory over these things that I have longed for? Is that you? Well, this pastor is seeing this in his congregation. Despite their continual striving for holiness, he says, they felt themselves unable to escape sinful habits and patterns of thought. Their despair was becoming more acute as they realized that years of battling, praying, and grieving over sin did not seem to break their bondage. Sin had not become less troublesome in their lives, nor less burdensome to their hearts. This is a, a real honest take at what a lot of people struggle with and think through on a daily basis. You very well might relate to this, that your heart can fall into deep spiritual depression and even real depression and despair over the battling with your besetting sins. Why, even Paul himself talks about this with his flesh, which is a way the Bible says our sinful nature. But for Paul and the other New Testament writers, the battle really goes on. We, uh, they don't quit. They don't stop fighting the good fight of faith, which we just read in 1 Timothy 4. We don't abandon the call to holiness. So what can help us in our thinking and living then? Well, we go back to the scripture. And we pick up this again at our text today. We read the foundational verses in verse 1 through 5. And now, like I read earlier, look at what Paul is saying in God's holy word. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified. We can think about Galatians 2.20 was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. What is he saying? Sin has no claims, no possible claims, no realistic claims of being our master any longer. That doesn't mean sin doesn't 
uh, and Satan doesn't use sin to condemn us, but realistically, if you are in Christ, it actually has no more claims anymore. So why would we continue to live under the old master, the old dominion of sin, if that's not the case any longer? You see, the new life entails living set apart to God now. A phrase that I always love to use is new life equals a new way of living. New life is not just a status change, but it is a new pattern of living. New life always equals, for the believer, a new way of living. Your new status of new creation, having new life is not a powerless title that is merely for show. Oh, are you a Christian? Check this box. It's not just that. It's not just for show. It's not just for society to uh, uh, pigeon you in a certain category. It's sort of like the king of England. I'm an Anglophile, but I'm kind of picking on them a little bit here. Who really now, honestly, in our day, modern day, is an, the, the king or the queen of England is just an iconic symbol. The title is there. But really all the power is with the prime minister and the, the parliament. The king of England, is, it's, his role is more for tradition's sake rather than actual day-to-day ruling. Now, of course, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance and, and there is some power there. But the actual ruling day-to-day is not really for the king. It's not a perfect comparison, but I think you get the point. Our new status is not just a title, an empty title. And so how often can we relate to that when we call ourselves Christian? Is it merely symbolic? I mean, really just do a a self-auditing in the spiritual sense. When I say to my relative or to a friend, I'm a Christian, is that really just symbolic? Or are we really living out the new life of a believer? But friends, for Christians, the title over our heads is not this stagnant, motionless, powerless thing. The title over us is beloved child of God, granted new life as new creation. And that new life leads to a whole different way of living. You are God's now. You have been bought with a price, the scripture said. And you are now to live apart for God and uh, from your conversion onward. Forgetting what lies behind and straining towards heaven, Christ in heaven. So this is why our Westminster Shorter Catechism question number number one, the foundational first question is, what is the chief end of man? Well, when I get converted, when I'm reborn, when I'm regenerated and redeemed, oh, the chief end of man from then on is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Before that conversion was to glorify me and to glorify the world and to glorify my affections and sensuality and all the the desires of anyone can conjure up. That was the chief end. But now, when you are new, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Sure, there are times of unbelief, doubt. There are times of struggle. But if you don't think you are to live in a new way, a new trajectory, then Jesus mentions this often in his ministry, then there's no proof of conversion. Dead trees can't produce good fruit. And so in verse 6, we are reminded that our old self, our old association with sin and death through the first Adam is now dead. The great preacher John Stott said, what was crucified with Christ 
was not a part of me called my old nature. Something like you're almost like at a dinner party and say, oh, that, that, was, that was that one segment of my previous life that was just corrupt. John Stott said, what was crucified with Christ was not a part of me called my old nature, but the whole, the whole of me as I was before I was converted. And so into the old self that was crucified with Christ, so that what? Look at verse 6 again. The body of sin might be brought to nothing. Or another translation, the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Wonderful New Testament scholar Douglas Moo says this. It's another way of saying sin is left rendered powerless over your body now. Sin is left rendered powerless over your body now. Let's continue in verse 6. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Christians, in the new life in Christ, in union with him, and if you're not a Christian here, this is a promise that if you do believe, this will be you. The new life in Christ, when you're united to him in faith, by grace, the nature and sin that controlled your life will be left powerless now. Is there still temptation? Yes. Is there still capacity to sin? Yes. But the power ruling over you is now gone. And so emphatically, we should no longer be slaves to sin if we're truly set free. Think of it this way. Let's just say you had a terrible car accident. You were paralyzed from the waist down. And in your physical state, you were also imprisoned for life and handcuffed to some immovable object. And so when God saves you, he not only frees you from that enslavement, uh, let me just remove the handcuff from you, Robin, but he picks you up and he gives you the power and ability to do something supernatural and miraculous, ability to walk and run again. It's not just the, the handcuffs being removed, but it's now to walk and to run in grace. Picture that in the spiritual. It's not just freeing you, but allowing you to run in his empowerment and grace for the rest of your life until you see him in heaven. Again, does that mean we're sinless? Does that mean we don't trip and fall ever? Does that mean we don't sin anymore? No. That's when we, we're glorified in our glorified state in heaven. But the focus is on the life in Christ and the new master and dominion over your lives. And if that hasn't happened yet in your life, then yeah, we, we have to do this self-reflection of our own souls. Meaning, if you don't care for Christ to be your new master and liberator, and I'm speaking to everyone here today, including myself, I mean, let's just really peel back the honest layer. Like, if you really don't want Christ to be your new master and liberator, and there's absolutely nothing compelling you to desire to see change or want to live for God or see this transformation in your life, then something is way off. And Paul is saying this is serious spiritual business. And so he's desperately saying new life should equal a new way of living. And so our battle with sin continues and rages on, but it's like a war. You know that the war is ultimately won. Perhaps in some wars in history, it's already been declared it's over, and this side is the victors. But then what happens often in wars and skirmishes? They continue to fight, some for months or weeks, some even years. They go on. Even though it's declared over, people will continue to fight. A classic example is when the Nazis were defeated, 
Do you think it was just like, okay, let's just all go back home? No, there was, there was some that continued to fight into the very bitter end, even though all, including the war, was completely lost for them. They continued to fight. History tells the same happened with the Confederacy in our Civil War, where battles and skirmishes still raged on for a bit. If some of you history buffs say, when was the end of the Civil War? A lot of you will say April 9th, 1865, Appomattox Courthouse in Central Virginia, where the Southern Army from Virginia surrendered to Grant. He said that, that was the end. But no, we all know in history that the, there were still more skirmishes. There was still more fighting even though the war was technically over. The same can be viewed about our spiritual battles. The war has already been declared over when? When Christ rose from the grave. Amen? Meaning that in his death and resurrection, Christ disarmed the opposition, he conquered death and sin, and vindicated himself as having supreme authority over all things, and yet the battle continues on with sin and living in a fallen world. But we know, we know, we know the final verdict of the war. And we know who the victor is. Christ Jesus alone. Let's put it another way. Paul is using words such as enslaved to sin, set free from sin. Obviously to show that sin played this dominating role in your life before Christ, let's not be ignorant, let's not be naive. Before Christ, we were dominated and enslaved in sin. Imagine the horrible scenario, let's say you're captured and held hostage by someone or some group for years and years and by the heroism of a suspecting neighbor or bystander or government, the police are informed of your capture and then you're rescued and freed. Imagine though, that after going to, let's say, the police headquarters and to give your account and you're ready to see your family again and they're walking you out and you say, here's your mom and dad or here's your, your children or here's your relatives. They, they've come to pick you up and you ridiculously say, actually, I want to go back. I wa actually want to go back to live in that captivity. I was actually pretty comfortable there. I'm used, it was horrible at the beginning, but now I'm used to it all now. Nobody in their right mind will let you go back. A counselor will sit you down and embrace you and say, that, that, that event, that season is over now. That person or that group of people have no mastery over you now. And so in the same way, sin is not our master anymore. Who counsels us? The Holy Spirit. He counsels us, Robin, stop. <laughs> stop with the old affections. Sin is not your master anymore. It's not our slave owner anymore. Why are you running back to it? Why live under its dominion anymore? And sadly, though, for many struggling believers, or, I dare, say, or I, dare I say even every Sunday churchgoer believers, the view of the old master's sin is not a wretched enslaver, but rather their old master was entirely pleasant, fun, hip, culturally viable, gave them good things, at least in their perspective. And they don't understand that the sin that they're still affectionately embracing is crude, spoiled, and rotten, and filthy. Some of you might have heard this illustration before, but at lunch in elementary school, long time ago, my friends told me this hilarious story that they had a sleepover, and forgive me if I'm repeating this illustration, 
At first, I was like, why wasn't I invited? But that's, that's another sermon. That the, the three or four of them were like, Rob, you got to hear what happened. Because it was 10 o'clock at night and we were supposed to be sleeping, the lights were off. We, we were just having fun. We wanted to keep talking. And, and the guy that lived there said, hey, in my closet is my old Halloween stash of candies. And it was probably June. But anyway, you, you get the point. It was just sitting there for months, maybe years. And they went in. They were like, you've got to be quiet. My dad's going to come and you know, blah, blah, blah. And so the three or four of them gathered around the sack in their tiny closet and were just giggling and just peeling all these old pieces of candy. And, they're, and, then, they're, and then after maybe five minutes, something dawned on them. And they were saying, doesn't this taste a little bit weird? And so he said, I forgot who the name was, but turn on the light. And they turned on the light, and they realized in that stash, all these bits of candies were covered with bugs. It was probably rotten, too. And it was a good lunchtime story. <laughs> this is why I share this. Our, our old master sin is somewhat like this. There is this enticement. There isn't sin like this. There's an enticement of counterfeit joy. There is an enticement of counterfeit joy. Even after we're saved and converted and redeemed, there is an enticement all the time of counterfeit joy. Then you realize this is utter, spoiled, and rotten, false indulgence. You realize readily by the conviction of the Spirit. There's nothing in us that could realize this on our own, but by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, realize what am I eating? This utter, spoiled, and rotten, false indulgence. As C.S. Lewis famously said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday or a vacation at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's so true. And yet you better realize every day you wake up, oh, the flesh will say, what is today's counterfeit joy going to be? Are we far too easily pleased? When you realize how destructive sin the old master is, you should have this repulsive rejection to it. Like when the light turned on for my friends and saw what they were actually eating, and you then should turn and live in freedom from its tyranny, that wake-up call. The late, wonderful Jerry Bridges adds, there is no such thing as salvation from sin's penalty without an accompanying deliverance from sin's dominion. This obviously does not mean we no longer sin, but that sin no longer reigns in our lives, close quote. And so let's read these verses one more time before we go on. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Let's continue in verse 8 then. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 8, he's just talking about this thought, uh, the thought process of Paul, death in Christ life in Christ, 
then means this living with him, an ongoing trajectory. Verse 9, Christ cannot die again because he already conquered this at his death and resurrection. There's no kind of cycle of every 40 years Christ needs to die again for this new kind of people group. No, he completely defeated sin and death introduced at the time of the fall of first Adam. And so that's why we can say death no longer has mastery over him. As one scholar puts it, only those who have died with Christ are considered righteous, justified, and thereby are enabled to conquer the mastery of sin. Meaning this is only possible with us. In union to Christ, not apart from Christ, not just a little bit of Christ, but wholly united to Christ, not just a little little religion mixed into your life or a Sunday church-going experience, but absolute union to Christ through faith and by God's grace. And so as verse 10 states, again, that's, that Christ's death was a once and for all finished work in his death. And so if you're confused with the passage, just focus on the fact that union with Christ not only gives us the benefit of death to sin and its mastery, but it now gives us the ability to live this life for God also. For any of us that says, I just can't. I just can't love others. I just can't forgive so-and-so. I just can't show compassion You are just flat out denying what the scripture is trying to tell you is the spiritual reality in you. And so so now what? We had all the bases of the foundations through verse 10. All the indicatives, all the, this has already been uh, taken place in Christ for you if you believe through faith by grace in Christ. And so now what? Well, here we have the implicit action statements from Paul in the last several verses in verse 11 through 14. Again, the foundation is set, but now comes the commands, the imperatives, and what we do with our new life. Verse 11 through 14, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the first imperative. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, the second imperative, to make you obey its passions, 13, the third imperative, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In the concluding verse, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. It's almost like it's a bookend, a foundational statement of all the indicatives and all the promises that you need to uphold and embrace. And then sandwich in the middle is this is what you do in the new life. And then again, verse 14, that sandwich that let me just remind you all, believers, you are not under law but under grace. So verse 11, the first of all the imperatives, you must, you all, it's second uh, um, person plural. It's not just to one individual, but it's to the church. You all must consider yourselves dead to sin or another translation, count yourselves dead to sin. Count or reckon, take into account that you are dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's one of the the famous verses people enjoy to quote because it's so fundamental for our identity. We are now alive to God in Christ Jesus. So take that into account. Reckon that for yourself or look upon this important scriptural truth. And if you're indeed look upon yourself with this new identity, well then verse 12, The second imperative, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its uh, passions. Do not let sin reign. 
The verb here, reign, can be uh, translated rule or uh, to become like a king. Don't let sin become like a king to you. Where you submit to it, it's no longer your master. Why should you submit to it? In junior high, I created this unofficial club, and I, I, was, I, I made myself president. And I was such a geek for doing this. I'm not sure if younger people understand what that is, but, but I, I was just this guy. I just had this ran out of seventh grade, so just don't judge me. But because I was the president, everyone in my club had to do what I said. This is a great club. And, and I remember some people wanting to be part of the club. I don't know why, but they're like, this sounds revolutionary. Let's, let's, let's go. And they were fighting over, can I be vice president? Can I be bookkeeper? I mean, it was, it was amazing. But some of my other friends at the lunch table, I was like, would you like to be part of my club? And they just laughed at me. And I remember saying to two of the guys, okay, you're going to have to do this. And they kept eating their lunch in a mocking fashion. Okay, <laughs> do what Robin says all the time. And I looked at them, and I was frustrated I remember, but I couldn't really get upset. Why? Because it was so ridiculous. I was actually just thinking it through in real time how moronic I sounded, and then I fainted. I'm just kidding. I, you know, it, but it, it was just a bad idea. The, the club lasted maybe 48 hours. But what they would say if I was another person there, I would say, who made you king? Who made you king? Say that with an attitude towards sin. Who made you king? Jesus is my king. Sin, you're not, and you're never going to be my master again. Paul is saying you're going to be confronted with evil still. You're going to be confronted with temptation. Evil desires will even creep up on you. And you must, as the commandment says, resist and not let sin reign over you. That's the actual command, to not obey its desires. That doesn't mean you'll always resist perfectly. But the attitude of deliberately resisting is present. It's active in the new life. And you should do a, a self-check here. Is there any fighting anymore? Just say, no, that was previous. This is now new. And so what a great reminder, what a challenge for us in today's sensuality, perversion, selfishness, grumbling, jealousy, self-centeredness, and coveting that surrounds us all the time. So don't let sinful inclinations be your king. Not just your outward actions, but your inward motives and thoughts. When Paul uses mortal body here, he's using that as a reference to the whole person, both internally and externally, both physical, uh, physical and internally, our minds, our thoughts, our motives, our actions. But you can't overlook that it does include the physical body, something that at least in American culture is getting more and more confused about, perverse about, more and more lending their bodies to all sorts of distortions and sensualities, either 2,000 years ago or to the present, this still applies inwardly and outwardly. And this doesn't exclude us in these safe church building walls. We, are, as Christians, need to heed God's word. It's not just pointing the finger at the world out there. It's pointing it to our own hearts. God, I, I need to confess this. The distortions, the perversions, the sensualities, all the things that come before us every day in the heart. 
We need to heed God's word and guard even our physical bodies from sin. And so we're almost done. Look at verse 13. Do not present, verse 13, or offer your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So let's re recap the imperatives so far. Verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, verse 12, don't let sin reign in you. Now verse 13, do not present or offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness or translated here, unrighteousness. The imperative verb translated present or offer has military connotations back then 2,000 years ago. It could be translated as present yourself, yield, dedicate. And the word for instrument is actually the word used for weapon or tool, literally. And wickedness is actually for the word for unrighteousness, things against the ways of God. So in a way, what this first part of the verse is talking about is don't present yourselves or dedicate yourselves or yield yourselves to sin as a tool for unrighteousness or a weapon to act against God's ways. Not any part. That's the command. That's the goal. It's a military verb, so there's a serious attention that's expected, as in waiting for the smoke to clear on the battlefield, especially kind of World War I in the trench warfare where there's smoke and there's clouds, and then all of a sudden it clears and you see this oncoming enemy. You're waiting for the smoke to clear on the battlefield every day to battle your enemy. You're waiting, you're looking, you're aware of what's happening, and so I'm watching and ready not to offer any part of myself to sin, but many of us as believers are on the front lines of the battle, but instead of being completely attentive, we're sipping our teas, we're laying out on a beach towel, we're reading our favorite magazine, and we are aloof. And I'll be the first to say, I, I could be in that category too. Sometimes I feel that way in the Christian walk. Where instead, every morning I'm supposed to wake up and be presented and ready and not to yield and I am sipping my iced tea. So don't present or offer anything for unrighteousness, but instead, look at the middle portion of verse 13, but rather present or offer yourselves to God because you are in the new life. What a stark contrast the new life should resemble, not aloof, not wandering aimlessly in sin, but ready. And then the last part, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, here it is, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Instead of using yourself as a tool to serve sin and unrighteousness, you might say, pat myself on the back, I am not pursuing those things. But it's the second part, we choose now to present every part of ourselves as a tool, as an instrument, as a weapon, to live and serve God's purposes, duties, and godly living. That's not literally fighting with a tool, but that's in the spiritual mind and heart to pursue a path of righteousness united to Christ. Meaning what? What does that look like? Loving God, loving people, prayer, preaching the gospel to yourself and sharing it to others, acts of kindness, acts of service, sacrificing for the church of Christ, and so on and so on. All that Christ has commanded, it's not just restrain, but now pursue something new. How specific is that, the scripture says? Well, we like to talk about the love of God, forgiveness, salvation. We will say that every Sunday as we gather as the church. All represented in the, glory, uh, in, the, in the glorious gospel. We want to be a church that majors in the things that I just said. 
in the gospel and forgiveness and conversion and redemption and salvation and faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone. We want to major in all that from A to Z. But we fail to see how the gospel then ushers us into the new path, this new life to be set apart and continually abiding in the gospel. We realize that we can serve and offer up our whole selves to God. When, when we realize that in what Christ has done for us, we actually can live for his purposes, live for his kingdom, and live in holiness. And any minute we leave the gospel, any moment that we forget the grace of our Lord, any second that we say, oh, it's actually I've taken over and I've taken the, the steering wheel, all the commandments that we just mentioned turn utterly into religious self-righteousness. But when you have the proper trajectory of gospel first, redemption, conversion, rebirth, a new way of living, this is something that I think can surprise many of us, surprise us to the deepest parts in the core of our being. Wow, I could live for him now. Cherishing the gospel leads to new living. It just really gets me excited because I, I really feel that push of strength that God has actually done this for me. He saved me. He brought me out of death and into life. And he wants me to serve in a way that honors the king. I feel that rush of, of compelling God-derived strength. But on the flip side, if the king is small in your eyes, if the king in your mind hasn't done any great thing for you, Oh, your desire to live this way will decrease. That's why we can never depart from reflecting and reminding ourselves of the king, of what he has done, that he has magnified that. And I'm not coming up with this formula. It's, it's actually right here in the scripture that in order to follow imperatives and commands, oh, reflect on Christ the king, God our creator, God that has set us apart for his will. And then finally, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you or no longer have any mastery over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Professor Schreiner from uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wonderful New Testament scholar, says what we have is a promise that assures believers that sin cannot rule over them. And so the responsibility to obey is a serious one, and it cannot be shirked. The responsibility to obey is a serious one, and it cannot be shirked. But even this obedience is a gift of God's grace and power. You get that last bit? Even our obedience and our new way of living is a gift of God's grace and power. What that reminds us is, is that we can never feel so spiritually proud because we do this and that for God and don't do the unrighteous acts that other people dabble in because it's all a gift of grace from God. Without him, not one ounce of inclination to do the things for the Lord. Therefore, now we celebrate that we are no, under, no, under, uh, no longer under this rule and dominion, but we are now under the reign and dominion of God's grace. Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. There's a lot to chew on here. Uh, forgive us if we're going to be slow to process, but Lord, we, we, we know that it's worth it that there needs to be this process of your word indwelling in us, digging deeper into the core of our hearts. It is hard to just overnight just say, this is right and no longer do we want to chase the uh, counterfeit joys of life. 
But God, may we recognize in humility that this is going to be a daily thing, a daily battling. The war is over. The war, the war is, is declared a victory for you, God. And the battle still rages on. Yet we are not powerless anymore. We are not subjected to the mastery of sin any longer. But we submit to the mastery of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so even though this is going to take a while to chew on, and that this will be a daily endeavor for our gospel souls, our gospel-affected souls, I pray that you would equip us with all that we need, as the Apostle Peter said, all that we need to grow in this by the blessing and the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that because of what the Son has done for us, we can now live in the new life. And the new life will always equal a new way of living. We pray this all in Jesus' gracious name. Amen.